And what I want to do first is offer a shameless commercial, if you'll let me. Um, Vacation Bible School. You know, one of our traditions around here at Weston Memorial Church is they are gracious enough to let me teach something during Vacation Bible School. So um, uh, I'll be teaching during Vacation Bible School. Uh, Adult Vacation Bible School is the same week as our Children's Vacation Bible School. And that week is July 12th through 15th. 19th. Is it 15th through 19th? They're going through Friday. I'm not. Got, they have more energy than I do. I'm going through Thursday. So it's, it's that Monday through Thursday uh, vacation Bible school, whatever that week is. Uh, what I'll be doing that week um, is uh, going to be talking about why, why in 1983... I made the decision, very conscious decision, uh, to live out my Christian life among the people called Methodist, 1983. So I'm going to talk about why I did that, because I'm one of those, I, I, I was not raised Methodist, I'm not Methodist by, by chance, I'm not Methodist by birth, I, I consciously chose it uh, when I was in seminary. So that's just sort of the way I function. I studied it and studied it and prayed about it and prayed about it. And then the uh, last Sunday, well, yeah, almost the last Sunday of August of 1983, I became a United Methodist. Uh, So anyway, I'm going to be talking about why I chose to become a a Methodist Christian with emphasis on Christian um, back in 1983. So I'll be talking about some of our theological distinctives. And by the way, uh, the emphasis is on Christian because some of our theological distinctives we share with Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Pentecostals, Charismatics. Um, Some of our theological distinctives differentiates us from Lutherans and Presbyterians and some stripes of Baptist. Um, So I hope I just you know, whetted your appetite because you may or may not know what I'm talking about there. But yeah, we, 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 we will be looking at our theological distinctives, which there's nothing really unique about us, but there are things that put us in that category with Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Pentecostal, Charismatic, uh, some of that crowd more so than Calvinist and um, Lutherans. But anyway, so I'll be looking at some of those theological distinctives. Uh, I'll be looking some at the history of our movement because if there's anything unique about us, it's some of the ways we've done things. Uh, but I'll be looking about at the history of our movement. I'll be looking, um, I'll be looking at kind of where we're at right now uh, as a movement, um, where it's an interesting place in the history of the people called Methodist, at least for the ones in the United States. Uh, there's about eight million of us, but there's 75 million of us around the world. Now, sometimes we American Methodists, we think we're the whole wide world, and we aren't. <laughs> we're getting smaller and smaller part of it uh, with every passing week. But we're, we're part of the 75 million Christian Methodists around the world, uh, the 8 million of us that belong to the United Methodist Church. So we'll talk some about what's going on now. But anyway, if you'll just you can shoot me an email, you can call the church office. Um, if you can just kind of let me know you're coming, that will help me with handouts. And I do it 
both in the morning from 9.30 to 11.15. Gosh, I'm testing my memory. From 9.30 to 11.15, and then I repeat at 6 to 8.15 at night. I think 6 to 8 at night. 6.30 to 8 at night. I'll get there, 6.30 to 8 at night. And, and you can let me know if you're planning on coming to one or the other session, but you really can bounce back and forth. Uh, I, I depend upon your schedule for the week. Uh, I, I go in with the intent of sort of talking about the same material in both sessions. But, of course, the makeup of the groups are different. So that means the experience for you and for me will be different in the two groups. We'll be meeting in the Aldersgate Miller class um, to help the time pass. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing some, some Methodist hymns, which that usually almost always means Charles Wesley. Except Fanny Crosby was a Methodist. Baptists love to take credit for her, but she would died. She was born and died a Methodist. So Fanny Crosby's hymns, I, we claim too. Anyway, so we'll be doing some of that. That's the first shameless commercial. The second shameless commercial, and then we'll get in the text. The second shameless commercial is this. Um, you probably know. Many of you know that I tried really, really hard to be one of the first groups back into Israel. Uh, post-COVID restrictions, and they were hoping to start receiving back people back into Israel in uh, beginning May the 23rd, but they didn't have the airport ready on May the 23rd because uh, they're verifying vaccinations and they're doing um, rapid antibody tests uh, to let people into the nation. They did not have that ready set up on May the 23rd because they were occupied with some other situations on May the 23rd. Um, and I didn't, and the, the, the first groups have returned to Israel. Uh, we've got groups, of, I say we, the company that I use uh, for my pilgrimages there. Uh, we have groups over there right now. Uh, I was pushing it with the end of May. If you, if you, even if you don't know a lot about the Middle East, you probably know it's hot in the summer in the Middle East. I was usually always go in November or February, but I've been anxious to get back to check on my friends over there in South Things or because they've had a tough time with COVID. Um, you know, they are so dependent upon Christian and Jewish pilgrims that when Christian and Jewish pilgrims are not arriving, uh, it's tough economically. So the government actually has been subsidizing uh, the tour guides there, such as the one I've worked with for 20 years. But uh, so I've been anxious to get back and check on my, my friends, see how people are doing. But um, the numbers are returning. The fall and the spring actually is going to be pretty large. Um, because of all the people who for 15 months haven't been able to travel to Israel because of all the COVID stuff. Anyway, um, plans are, well, plans are basically made. Uh, I'll be going with a kind of normal group, which I asked the company to limit to 30 this time around. It'd be sort of a normal group. We will, um, uh, February the 18th through March 1st, will be there. It's a little bit, it's a little bit longer than a lot of groups goes, 12 days. Uh, they, they, they customize my trips to suit me because there's some things I like, some things I don't like. I, I do the standard stuff because I always know I have people uh, that'd be their one and only time ever going to the Holy Land. But um, keep my interest up. I usually do something unique every time we go. And I always make sure that my groups get to do something that all the other groups don't do. Um, Anyway, so we, we are scheduled and it's all been, everything's been done except the really nice looking brochures. 
but um, I've got the information. It's not the really nice looking brochures. Um, but I've, the itinerary and all the information I've got, I think if you know that you, if you know anyone that's interested, and I'll actually have my first information meeting on August the 15th from five to seven, that's a Sunday here in this room. Uh, and this time around, this, this is sort of a normal thing and um, with normal numbers, um, um, uh, Pastor Melissa here at church, whose husband is also a pastor over at Sedge Garden United Methodist Church. Uh, I'm taking them with me on this trip. Part of my passion with getting Christians to the Holy Land. I love getting Christians to the Holy Land. It's one of the most impacting things you'll ever experience as a Christian. I'm sure it's the same truth for the Jewish faith. But as a Christian, it's one of the most impactful things you can have happen. But uh, for a pastor, I love getting young pastors uh, over there. Some pastors wait way too late in their ministry to go to the Holy Land. So I'll take Justin and Melissa with me when we go um, next February 18th through March 1st. You'll get to, at that time of year, and I usually go in February or November, in February, you're beginning to see the blooming of the Galilean wildflowers. So it's really kind of a nice time to be over there, particularly in the Galilee. Anyway, there's my two shameless commercials. Uh, if, you're in, if you're interested in either one of those opportunities, just let me know. So with that, we come to a very interesting section of 1 Corinthians. If you have any Mormon friends, you know that they are the only people around that still practice proxy baptism. Um, and I'm not sure all the reasons. I'm, I'm obviously not Mormon, and I'm not an expert on, on Mormons. I don't know all the reasons they practice Mormon baptism, but they, they do have a practice where they can baptize me on behalf of relatives in order who are not Mormon so I can have them with me in Mormon heaven. So that's what I mean by proxy baptism. The Mormons do have that tradition. Uh, the reason I lift that up is they get the phrase um, from this section in 1 Corinthians. Paul makes a reference to baptism on behalf of the dead. You know, he's talking about resurrection of the dead, right? He's making a case for resurrection of the dead. He's making a case that we Christians, uh, we both believe in the immortality, the, the immortality of the soul, the ongoing life of the soul, but at the same, that's, that's sort of a Greco-Roman thing, but at the same time, we believe very much in the Jewish tradition of the resurrection of the body that occurs at the end of history. So we're unique, we're not either or. All other groups on planet Earth that have ever lived, um, when they start talking about the afterlife, they will tend to group into one of those two areas. Immortality of the soul, the sort of the spiritual ongoing of a human being, or the, or the immortality, or the resurrection of the body at the end of history. Uh, we are historic Christians or both. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord upon death. If you're in Christ, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Um, but then at the end of history, when the kingdom is complete and Jesus, Jesus finishes his work, and thy kingdom will come on earth just as presently is in existence in heaven. Then body and soul will be reunited again. And, and our spirit, our soul will be uh, in a glorified body. Such as what, how we encounter Jesus in those days, in those 40 days post-resurrection before his ascension. So Paul is in this area in 1 Corinthians. All of 1 Corinthians is talking about resurrection of the body. He's making a case for resurrection of the body. Because again, Greco-Romans believed in immortality of the soul. 
that you spiritually lived on forever. But they would have told you quickly that resurrection of the body is a vulgar, earthly, materialistic, unsophisticated concept. They would have acknowledged that, that Jews, some Jews anyway, Pharisees, some Jews anyway, uh, believe in the resurrection of the body. I mean, they, 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 you know, they might have heard the story of Ezekiel and the dry bones. Uh, and that whole, even that image of the story of Ezekiel and the dry bones, you know, if, if you weren't a Christian and you saw that story, you, you would think you're watching some zombie movie by some great horror author or something. So the Greco-Roman world, they accepted immortality of the spirit of the soul. But yeah, they did not accept him, um, the, the resurrection of the body. So Paul here is in Corinth, which is basically a Greco-Roman city. It is a Roman colony that was established by Roman ex-Roman soldiers on what we would today call the Greek mainland. So uh, Paul is arguing all of 1 Corinthians 15. It's his longest single extended theological discussion in the New Testament. Uh, 58 verses talking about resurrection of Biden. We're making our way through it, and uh, we're, we're going to do a little bit more. We really will begin next week in earnest, and I hope to maybe just read through part of next week. We'll begin next week in earnest where he really starts to define and paint the picture for what resurrection body looks like, for what he means by a unique phrase, spiritual body. Uh, the Greeks would have told him that's an oxymoron, but Paul says it's not a spiritual body. Uh, we'll be there in earnest next week. So today, we're, he's, still, he's still laying the groundwork you know, of, of, of using logic and rhetoric to argue for um, the gospel. That's what he did at the beginning of the chapter. And then he started arguing for the resurrection of the body. He's still laying the groundwork. What I want us to look at today is simply verses 24 through 29, excuse me, verses 29 through 34. Um, he starts off with this interesting verse. Otherwise, he's arguing for resurrection of the body. Otherwise, if you don't believe in this resurrection of the body stuff, he's saying, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If you, when you get to heaven and say, Paul, we would, have, we would have said we don't know. Could you say more? He just sort of drops this here. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Um, he's, he's making a case for resurrection of the body. So he's just, as an aside, saying to these people in Corinth, if you believe in baptism for the dead, obviously they're doing that in Corinth. Uh, some of them are at least doing that in Corinth. He's just using that as an example to say, why in the world would you even do that if, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body? Um, we wish we knew more about what he was talking about here. Uh, we have no record of it anywhere else in early Christian literature. Uh, nobody has done anything with this, except I'm going to offer you some possible explanations in a moment, but at least on the surface, baptism on behalf of the dead, at least on the surface, none, nobody in Christian history 
has ever done anything with this. Again, we don't see any evidence of it anywhere else in the New Testament period. Um, no other Christian community has ever done anything with it. It may be something very unique to some of the folks in Corinth, uh, other than the Mormon movement, other than the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And love my Mormon brothers and sisters, but they have some weird ideas that puts them outside the mainstream of, of, of historic Christianity. And that's one of them, this baptism of the dead. That's not the one that's a major issue with most of us. We have more major issues with Mormons than baptism uh, of the dead, but they do practice that. And they will use this. There's biblical warrant. Paul is making reference to baptism on behalf of the dead. Again, his point is he's arguing for resurrection. We wish somebody would have said, Paul, say more about what it is you're using as an example. By the way, before I talk about what it may be, notice it, just the way he's using it. He's neither condemning nor approving of it. He's just saying, you're doing this. So, so in essence, you, you believe in the resurrection of the body or you wouldn't be doing this. You know, I wish you'd have said more. I wish you'd have said more what this practice was. Uh, and I wish you'd have said more in regards to, is he, would he condemn it or approve of it? He just sort of throws it out there. Um, so let me tell you what I, well, not me, well, me. Let me tell you what Christian folks for 2,000 years, because you know you've heard me say it many times. Martin Luther said, where scripture is silent, we should be silent. That's a good practice. None of us do that. Particularly in the Christian tradition, we, we, we just, we're inquiring minds. So when we've looked at this for the last couple thousand years and say, what could this possibly be? There, there's, there's a lot of options. If you have a good study Bible, if you go get a good commentary on 1 Corinthians, you, you'll, you'll see several options. Baptism for the dead. So, some people, well, let me see if I can do it in a logical order. That would make Paul happy. It could very simply be, and this is sort of what the Mormons pick up, you know, let's say I'm in the process of coming to Christ there in Corinth. He is going to start talking about martyrdom in a moment. He is going to start talking about dying for your faith. So that's almost context here. Let's say um, I'm in the process of coming to faith. I'm hanging out with Christian people. I'm, I'm taking the sacraments. I'm doing all this stuff. It looks like I've become a Christian, but um, I, I lose my life before I get baptized. So somehow, symbolically, uh, they let somebody stand in and there's somebody baptized on behalf of the dead. There, there is some warrant in Judaism. Uh, you know, if you're really curious, and if you have an apocrypha, you know, those books that early Christians wrote that Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics esteem more highly than Protestants do, uh, they're still good books. If, if you have an apocrypha, go look at 2 Maccabees chapter 12. You'll see an example there of Jews in the intertestamental period offering prayers on behalf of the dead, which is also Roman Catholics use the apocrypha more than we do. That's why if you ask a Roman Catholic for scriptural warrant for prayers for the dead, one of the things they'll give you text and verse is from 2 Maccabees. And if you happen to be Protestant, I hope you realize you say that's a second-tier set of books for us. It's not a first-tier set of books. Same is true for them. It's not a set. They call it deuterocanonical, second canon. So it's really a second-tier set of books for Catholics, but they still use those books more than we do. 
But in Second, in second Maccabees, there is an example of, um, of Jews who have, been, um, who have been martyred for their faith, the, the community praying for them after they're dead. So this could be referred to some sort of Jewish practice that the Jews had taught some of the Christians there, which in a, in a sense that's still talking about sort of proxy baptism or vicarious baptism um, on behalf of someone else. I, by the way, if, if that is what is being spoken of here, most of us think, and I, we know Paul pretty well because he wrote a lot of stuff, most of us think if this is just a baptism proxy on behalf of vicariously for someone else, most of us will assume Paul wouldn't have condoned that. You know, I can't have faith for someone else. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't be a Christian because my grandmother was. Um, anyway, so Paul wouldn't condone that. If, if they're talking about some sort of vicarious, some sort of proxy baptism, um, it could be something um, that uh, someone who is martyred they baptized the corpse of the martyred person. Because we do know that real early in Christian tradition, martyred saints become a great inspiration for us. You know, it was Tertullian, that great early church father, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It still is. So the martyrs have always really been important to us. They've been great witnesses to us. They've been great mentors to us. Again, that's why we don't celebrate the birthday of Christian saints. We celebrate the death day of Christian saints. So there could be something going on because martyrdom is being talked about in this text. So it could be actual literal baptism of someone who's been martyred or killed for Christ. Um, it could even be, because there's a little bit of warmth for this, they could be doing Christian baptisms, just like we know Christian baptisms. They could be doing Christian baptisms at martyrs' graves, sort of linking, linking living Christians with deceased Christians. We know, like in the catacombs of Rome, it was a common, common practice in those catacombs, like on the anniversary of our grandfather, who was a great Christian martyr, that we take a potluck dinner and we have a dinner there at grandfather's grave in the catacombs. So we, we've always historically made a little more out of the Christian dead than the modern world tends to. So there could be something going on with the baptism of new Christians um, you know, just at the graves of martyrs. It could even be something as simple as, you know, we talk about those who have been baptized for the dead. It could be something as simple as the new Christians who are taking the place of the people who have died for Christ. You know, uh, we're going to stand on their shoulders. We're going to take their place in the body of Christ. So, yeah, I'm coming to Christ because we need to replace all the ones that are dying for Christ. It could be something as simple as that. Being, well, said this, there is a Jewish presence in Corinth. We know that. There's a Jewish, just like in all, all of the Greco-Roman cities around the Mediterranean world, there was a, um, a, a Jewish presence, but it was not completely Jewish. But because it was a Jewish presence, it could be something as simple. They could be saying baptism on behalf of the dead or baptism of the dead or baptism for the dead is just simply because Jews do this. They still do this. Uh, the washing of the corpse of our loved ones. 
you know, um, in the Jewish tradition, particularly Orthodox and conservative Jewish traditions, uh, they don't use funeral directors to the extent we use funeral directors. Um, if we were an Orthodox gathering, and the word for gathering is synagogue, if we were an Orthodox synagogue, you know, some of you might be on the finance committee, some of you might be on the education committee, some of you are, would be on the preparing the corpses committee, because that's the way they do it. They don't give it over to professionals. Women prepare women, men prepare men. You know, there's the practice of Shiva where you sit for seven days with the corpse. Uh, there's a lot of rituals that surround the death. You have to bury within 24 hours. There's a lot of rituals that surround the death of, of, of a Jew, uh, particularly in Orthodox and conservative uh, uh, Judaism. So it could be something as simple as just the, the carrying of the body. And they were calling the washing of the, the dead Christians, they were calling it the baptism of the dead Christians. Um, the best answer is we don't know what Paul's talking about here. We wish we knew. Um, I don't think the Mormons have figured it out, though, by the way. They, they do, they're the only ones out there that, that talk about baptism for the dead. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go and create a Christian tradition over this. Again, Paul is arguing for the resurrection of the body. So he's basically saying if there's not something after death, why are you doing anything with the dead? And that's sort of going to be the trajectory, the path of the argument here. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then that should impact a whole lot in your life, and uh, including baptism for the dead. Anyway, that's fascinating. That's your trivia for today. Uh, it's the only time it's mentioned in the New Testament. I don't know exactly what it means. So just look back at it again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Uh, again, he's just saying we believe in the resurrection of the, of the body. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I've mentioned several times here in this text, he's going to start talking about martyrdom. He's going to start talking about dying for your faith in Christ. That's a little interesting, too, because there was not a lot of that going on yet. It will come around. But in the 50s, when Paul wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, there was not massive um, persecution of Christians. They didn't hardly, there, weren't, there wasn't hardly enough of us at that point to, to create a reaction. Now, the time will come. Well, we will create the act. Within a, in about a decade, both Paul and Peter will be killed. They'll be martyred in the city of Rome. But um, we don't even know exactly what Paul's referencing here, though he does. There's a, lot, there's a lot of references in Paul of his suffering, and he's going to say some more about his suffering. The, Paul, the suffering that Paul tends to talk about is obvious in the book of Acts. The suffering that, because he's not really suffering yet at the hands of Rome, the official people who run the empire, but where he is suffering, and like in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he'll give you a long list. Where he is suffering, he is suffering because of his convictions about Jesus Christ at the hand, hands of his Jewish community. That's where he's suffering. He's suffering because of his faith in the gospel, particularly at the hands of, of the Jewish community. Uh, go look at the book of Acts. Romans don't quite know what to do with this new stuff. They don't really quite care about this new stuff, kind of like Pontius Pilate with Jesus. They don't quite care about this new stuff, but yeah, the Jews certainly did. 
And when Paul embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, they saw him as a renegade, a turncoat, a traitor. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of persecution coming at Paul. And when he lists his sufferings, and, and some, sometimes he just suffered because of being on the road all the time. You know, he talks about shipwrecks even when he's sailing the seas. But he has a lot of suffering at the hand of his Jewish brothers and sisters. Suffering at the hands of Rome will come eventually, um, which that's important to know because of what he's getting ready to say now. So he says, why are we in danger or jeopardy every hour? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Now, we know from Paul's other letters, he, when he talks about dying daily, at this point, he's talking metaphorically spiritually. As Christians, we should die to self daily. As Christians, we should die to the world around us daily. As Christians, we should so deny our will, our wishes, our way and embrace God's will, God's wishes, God's way to such an extent that it looks like a death to ourselves. So um, at, at, at this point still, that's what Paul writes about in Romans and Galatians. This death to self, pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, and fall after me is what Jesus said. Now there, will, there have always been Christians who have physically died for Christ. More Christians died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than any other century in human history. Uh, 21st century will probably be the same. Uh, it's not a lot of that happening yet in Paul's world. It's coming. It's not a lot of that yet, but he's getting a lot of suffering, persecution, attacks, verbal and otherwise. Remember the stoning of Stephen? Uh, and of course, Jesus is sitting right there. I mean, uh, Paul's standing there when they stoned Stephen. Those were Jews stoning Stephen because they thought Stephen was going against the temple. They thought Stephen was going against the law of Moses. And they thought Stephen was bizarre about this man, Jesus. So they're, they're, that's the suffering that's going on here. But he's talking about dying daily to self. Is what he's talking about here. When he says, I die every day. He's, he's not claiming to be a zombie or anything. He's dying to self every day. Um, look at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? Now, the beast at Ephesus, uh, the wild animals at Ephesus. Uh, just a couple things about that. Remember, Paul is in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He's writing to Corinth from Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city. Paul stayed there for two and a half years. Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus, those two and a half years, than he spent anywhere else. Um, because in Ephesus, which would be in present-day Turkey, uh, in the uh, Roman province of Asia Minor, it's on the west coast of present-day Turkey, amazing site to visit, because uh, it was a major, major, major city uh, in Paul's day. He, he stayed put in Ephesus, and the whole world came to see Paul. The whole world passed through Paul's doorstep as long as he was in Ephesus. So he talks about fighting the wild beast in Ephesus. Well, I know our, our, our minds go back to movies like Quo Vadis and Ben-Hur and all that stuff. Again, that sort of persecution of Christians um, comes later. There's not a Colosseum yet, by the way. Uh, there's, there's amphitheaters. There's no Colosseum. The Colosseum was built at the end of the first century. So that's why he can't quite do um, being her stuff yet. But um, um, so when you look at 
the beast that he's been facing in Ephesus. Uh, most everybody that deals with this says he's still speaking spiritually. He's still speaking metaphorically um, for two reasons. Persecution by the Christians from the hands of Romans really isn't happening yet. But another very good reason that you could all figure out if you sit here and thought about it long enough, when we do get to the point, when they do get to the point where they start entertaining themselves, the Roman world, um, like in the gladiatorial contest, throwing Christians to the beast, feeding you know Christians to the lions, they start entertaining themselves with that kind of activity. Um, they used slaves, they used foreigners, uh, they used criminals for the purpose of entertainment, throw them to the lines. Uh, guess who they didn't use? Thank you, Roman citizens. And you know Paul's a Roman citizen, right? So even if they had been doing this, thank you, Mary, even if they had been doing this uh, at Paul's life, it's just like... Um, Paul was not crucified like Peter. Paul was beheaded. Why was Paul beheaded? He's a Roman citizen. That's the merciful way to kill. Merciful and quick way to kill. So as a Roman citizen, he, had, he was Jewish, but he's a Roman citizen with certain rights. You know that from the book of, book of Acts. So uh, even if they had been literally throwing Christians to the lines in, um, um, in Ephesus, they wouldn't have thrown Paul. Uh, but they weren't even doing that in the first century. Paul was in Ephesus in the in the 50s of the first century. They weren't doing it. So he's speaking spiritually. He's speaking metaphorically. And uh, I, that's not a stretch for me. Um, I love the church. I love Christian people. I also know the meanest people I've ever met have been in churches. Um, yeah, I've met the wild beast. I, I've, I've met those wild animals. They can come at you. So I think Paul's speaking, most all of us think Paul's speaking here metaphorically. And again, well, just to show you an example, because I keep skirting around it, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Put your finger at 1 Corinthians 15. But just go over to 2 Corinthians. It's not very far. Just, just go east a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you look at chapter 11, if you get over to, like, let's start with verse 23, because I keep referencing this. Here's, where, here's one of those places Paul lists his sufferings for you so that you know exactly what he's talking about. He, he wants you to know exactly what he's talking about. If you look at verse 23, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, are they servants? He's starting to boast and brag because some people are coming after him. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, and here's his list, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of who? The Jews. The 40 lashes, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Who stoned? The Jews. Think about Stephen. Stoning was a Jewish way. Of, of punishing. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. He's getting some danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, 
and in cold in, without food in cold and exposure and I always like this next verse and apart from other things there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches so there's his list of his sufferings uh, again um, he suffered a lot for the sake of the gospel but it wasn't necessarily a, a political legal suffering at the hands of Rome you know, in a city like Ephesus. So we have to take these wild beasts here uh, that he fought with at Ephesus uh, metaphorically. Uh, anyway, but he's saying here, why would I go through all this stuff if there's no afterlife? I mean, we're foolish. If, and he's getting ready to illustrate this. We're foolish if we go through all of this stuff and you only live once. Grab all the gusto you can. Because when this is over, it's over. You know, um, he'd say you're foolish if you put up with this stuff, like being a Christian disciple, if you, if you don't live after this life. If, we, if the dead are not raised, and here he quotes, he says, you know, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicurean philosophy. That's the philosophy of most of the people in our culture. He's actually quoting, and this, is, this teaches us something about using the Bible. He's actually quoting uh, Isaiah chapter 22, a text from Isaiah chapter 22, a text from the Bible that says, um, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's quoting that from the Bible. So you can go out of here and tell your Christian friends, the Bible says... Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But notice, Paul is saying here, bad idea. When it's used in Isaiah, bad idea. That This is a good illustration of the importance of context. If you don't pay attention to the context, you might create a weird religion. You know, like the Epicureans did. The Epicureans believed, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That was one of their doctrines. Um, so Paul's quoting that, but it's just like the Bible says there's no God. But you have to always read. It says the fool has said in his heart there's no God. Well, yeah, the Bible does say let us eat and drink uh, for tomorrow we die. Um, but yeah, Paul's not, he doesn't think that's a good idea. He's saying, you know, but he's saying if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no future life, if this life is all there is, then you might as well become Epicurean. The Epicureans are smarter than the Christians and the Jews, if, if, if this life is all there is. Um, what I think I see in the body of Christ today in the West are not doctrinal atheists, but I see a lot of practical atheists in the body of Christ. They don't, if you sit them down, they won't tell you they don't, they won't tell you that they disbelieve in an afterlife, but just watch how they live. Watch their passions Watch what they think is important. Um, that's what I mean by a practical atheist. You know, I, I don't run across a lot of theoretical doctrinal atheists. But I run across a lot of people, and you do too, and we fall into this trap sometimes, people who act as if, live as if, have attitudes as if, make their plans as if, think about death as if there's no next life. That this is all there is. You only go around once in life. Grab all the gusto you can. Um, yeah. Um, when somebody, 
when you, you've heard me say this before, when you wish somebody a happy birthday and they say back to you what's better than the alternative, good opportunity to say not necessarily. You're just making some assumptions here that I don't think you want to really believe. Uh, death is better than life. Remember what Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now there's, I've, you know, Paul's already given you permission to, to hate to hate death, to see death as an enemy, to rail against death because it, it, it's the last enemy, but it's been defeated. That's why there's a tragic aspect to death. But at the end of the day, for the Christian, it's not a tragedy. You know, that's why I've always said, if I'd have been Lazarus, I would have chewed Martha out when I got back. <laughs> why in the world did you have them bring me back? Um... Anyway, but that's what I mean by practical atheists as opposed to theoretical doctrinal atheists. The, the problem in the church there are the, are the practical atheists, the people who live as if there's no God. They live as if the faith is not true. Uh, verse 33, he's going to continue on with this. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, this is fascinating. If you have a study Bible, your study Bible will tell you he is quoting a 3rd century B.C. Greek comic playwright, Menander. Paul didn't just sit around reading Hebrew scriptures. He was a brilliant man. That's why there's about three times uh, uh, we run across Paul quoting uh, people from the Greco-Roman world. Uh, he would have known about Menander. He would have known about that Greek playwright, Menander. And he's quoting a Greek pagan philosopher here. He was a brilliant man. So yeah, let, let the scriptures be your primary reading, but not your only reading. Uh, when John Wesley said he was a man of one book, he read many, 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 many things. Um, but the book, was, the book he's talking about, the Bible, was primary. So uh, here Paul is quoting Menander, a third century B.C. Greco-Roman pagan uh, playwright. And he says, bad company ruins good morals. Um, I, I'm sure you're like me. I used a form of that proverb with my children when they were teenagers. Sometimes bad company can just destroy us. And so Paul is starting to say here, because he's going to make it obvious in the last verse, he's starting to say here, be very, very, very careful who you allow to influence you. That's why he can say now in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, that's sort of honest. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Paul believes that's an option. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. Remember the Greeks loved the concept of philosophy and wisdom, and they thought they were brilliant. Paul says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, some have no knowledge of God. They should be ashamed of themselves. So let me just show you what's coming. Verse 35, he's, he's made his case that logic helps him prove there's a resurrection of the body, there's a future life. So now he's just going to say, and this is what we're going to look at next week, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. God gives it 
a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, different kinds of bodies. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, one kind for animals, another kind for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown imperishable? What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's his phrase. It's an oxymoron, spiritual body. Uh, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not... But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. He quotes Isaiah, The sting of death is sin, and the power of law of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, hold on to this. So um, that's about three weeks worth, by the way, right there. We'll, we'll, let's take about three weeks to look at that. Well, I've kept you a minute, two minutes too long. Make sure you know everybody in the room. And if you've got questions, I'm in no hurry. Come see me. Go in peace. Thanks.